So church, we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning, so please open up your Bible to there. We have only one verse on the docket this morning, one verse for us to consider in God's holy word this day, but the topic that we are pursuing is one that is so germane to the Christian faith, and it is such a big topic that I'm afraid that we'll only be able to cover a couple different aspects of our topic. Uh, the, the title for the sermon this morning is Joy Under the Sun. Joy Under the Sun. So we're considering really then not just any kind of joy, but a, a specific, a Christian joy, a Christian merriment. More specifically, how it is that Christians are to have joy no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And that's what Kohelet is bringing us to here at this point in Scripture. Because, of course, we are, we are always under the sun in so much as we have air in our lungs and life in our blood. This is the context in which Kohelet, who is Solomon, who, we've, who the preacher who's identified himself as that, is bringing up joy here at this point. So let's read our text. And then after we read it, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 15. Please follow along with me there. The Word of the Lord reads, And I commend joy for man, has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. That ends God's the reading of God's holy, sufficient, and inspired word. Let's pray and ask him to bless our time and to, so that we might understand it. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for your word. How it is that you have given us these two books by which we may know you, the, the book of nature and then also the book of special revelation. And we are grateful especially to you, Lord, for your word, because even though the heavens declare your glory, it is your word which affirms what we see in nature. It is your word that reveals to us Christ and your plan of salvation and our desperate need for a Redeemer. And so we ask, God, that you would impart to us understanding this morning, that you would illuminate our eyes, our hearts, our minds, that we may rejoice in the many blessings that you are and that you have supplied for us in Christ. Lord, help me to rightly handle your word. We pray that my my meager attempt to bring what is true, that you would bless it, that you would cause your word to abound in our lives for Christ's glory. In his name we ask these things. Amen. So I, I mentioned part of the context already, but I would like for, for us all to understand the, the greater context and the immediate context of this one verse that we're considering this morning as well that we might see the, the progression that builds up to Solomon when he says this statement here in verse 15. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it's been a while. I, back in our, the night, this is part 32 through this book. Back in part 9 through this book, I had mentioned then that there are four divisions that we find in this book, Ecclesiastes. When we're reading it, if you were to just read it straight through, you would probably notice that there are some things that repeat and they kind of they turn to sections. There's these four divisions that are in the book. 
And there's a conclusion at the end of each division that is very similar. The text that we just read, 8.15, is the conclusion of the third division, in fact. And in each of them, Solomon, Kohelet, he is communicating to us what what it is that he has found out while he was doing this searching that he was on, and specifically then, where it is that we may find joy in this life. Solomon is saying that, that he has tried everything, and not only has he tried it all, he's tried it in such a way that you and I, we, we can't even begin to attempt, because he has so many more great resources than we do. God has given to him so much. And guess what? At the end of it all, at the end of it all, his, 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 his resolve, his resolution is always, I never had true joy. He was never content because he was looking for these things, fulfillment and life and joy and peace in all of the wrong places. But in his reflection that he provides at the end of each division, he always notes the right place. And he offers a poetic resolution at the end of each division that points us to the Lord, to have joy in the Lord, and then to be content. So the first division ends in chapter 2. And he explains here in chapter in verse 1, 1 through chapter 2, that joy doesn't come from within man's power. That it is God who is the one who gives things, and then he also gives us the power to enjoy these things. The power to enjoy things doesn't come from us, church. It is the grace of God. So the first division is, is Solomon is teaching us, their division one, that joy doesn't come from the power of man. And then it ends. There, that you note there on your note sheet on your outline that it ends in 2.26. Let me read to you verses 24 to 26. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. So very similar to the passage that we read, isn't it? Had a lot of those same types of themes that we read in 8.15. Now, the second division here in this book is going to carry us all the way to chapter 5. So go ahead, if you're in chapter 2, and turn your scripture to chapter 5. In this section, Solomon sets his exploration here in life, in the world, to the nature of God's sovereignty. How it is that God is in control of all things. He, he looks into the world and to see like, how God's hand is working through all of these different events that are happening. And, and behind it all, is how can man have joy in light of that? How can a person be content if he doesn't know that God is sovereign and over all things? So the second division, or the second section there on your outline, division B, from 3.1 to 5.20, is consideration of God's sovereignty over all things. That's what he's dealing with there. And his conclusion in all of that is beginning at verse 18 in chapter 5. And he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his law. And it goes on to 19. To say very similar things as well, too. What we, it's very similar to what we read at the end of the division in chapter 2. Very similar to what we read at the end of the division in chapter 8. So very similar once again. And the verse that we have for this morning, again, is it's the, it's the close of the third division. And in this section, what Solomon is doing, 
from 6.1 to 8.15 is he's applying the doctrine that God gives enjoyment and vanity. And of course, you know, his conclusion, we, we already read that this morning. It was eight, chapter 8, verse 15. Saul, in this whole section, Solomon is applying this doctrine that God gives enjoyment. And then the fourth division brings us through the end of the book. So it goes from 8.16 all the way to the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that section, that division, in that division, Solomon is addressing practical concerns in life. And we're not going, we're going to save his reflection for when we get to that in a, a few months or however long it takes. But do you see, church, how at the end of every division, he keeps coming back to a simple joy in life? He's tried all these things. Some of them are, are much wilder than any one of us should ever try, than anyone that, who's ever looking to please God and honor God should ever try or pursue. But at the end of the day, he always comes back in each of these areas, in each of these categories, to say, to simply seek the Lord, have joy in all these ordinary things. He says, you can skip the things that I've tried. They're all vanity. Have this specific kind of joy instead. This is what this book is primarily about, knowing this joy that we'll speak about here in just a moment. Now, what is the immediate context for the verse that we have before us? That's what we need to be thinking about if we're really going to understand the, the force that he is making this statement in. Notice it reads, And I commend joy. This is his response to what he has experienced and searched out in this third division. He commends joy for what? In light of what? in light of the reality that things don't always work out the way that they should. He's commending joy for us even when things don't turn out the way that we want them to, the way that we plan them to, the way that we think they should be working out. Even when they work out contrary to the way that we think is best, good, and right. Look there at, at verse 14 in the Word. What do we do with this? What do we do with the reality that there are righteous people who have it happen to them as the wicked deserve? What do we do with that information? Or what should we do with the fact that powerful kings and wicked men seem, and I, and I stress the word seem here, what do we do with the fact that it seems like they get away with acts of injustice like he's talked about in chapter 8 already? Solomon comes once again to an unexpected answer at the end of this division. Despite these things, his, his command to us is that we should prepare to make merry, that we should have gladness. Remember, this is God's word, church. It is written to believers. It's written to God's people. It is written to Christians that we might know Christ and we might know God's plan of redemption. This isn't some nihilistic response to things outside of our control where it's like just, just eat and drink and be merry and don't care about everything because nothing matters. That's not at all what he's saying here. This is his instruction to us in light of all these things based on who God is and how it is that we might live in light of them. This is the faith-filled reaction or the faith-filled instruction to the one who trusts that God is perfectly in control. The fact that men wield power sometimes unrighteously, the fact that right now in this age things aren't always the way that we want them to be, 
These very true realities, according to Solomon, are occasions for us to make joy, to make merry. They are, they are occasions for us, in other words, to be happy for those who have the wisdom of the gracious gift of this wisdom that God has been giving to us through Solomon. And don't miss this. His point, friends, is that there is true and real joy to be had in Christ, no matter what is happening in our lives. No matter what is going on, there is true and real joy for the one who is united to Christ in faith. This is what he's concluding. He's trying all these things, but this is what he's finding out. Faith in Christ changes everything. Now before it is that we can really consider how it is that we can have this, this supernatural joy, I just want to consider the verse in a little bit more detail. Not only is Solomon saying that we should have joy, but he's, he's commending it to us. It carries with it a, a forcefulness, doesn't it? It's not just saying, be joyful. He's commending joy to us. It comes from the Hebrew word shabak. And it is, it is a word that is associated with loud praise. It's associated with gladness and goodness and, and certainty. So in other words, it's not like he's saying, with his head down, oh, all these bad things are happening. Just have joy. That's not what he's saying. He's shouting it out. He's saying, this is, despite everything that's happening, have joy. I'm commending joy to you. It's associated, this word is associated with gladness and goodness and with certainty. And that is the case with it here as well, too. In the majority of the cases that it's used, this word is, is used to praise God for his mighty acts and his deeds. Take, for example, Psalm 117, verse 11. So you can find that just really quick by turning a few pages to your left. Psalm 117, the same word, Shabbat, is used in Psalm 117, verse 1. There we read, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. It's the word extol there. And it carries with it again, this, this loud shouting. This shouting out, in this case, crying out for the glory and for the praise of God. Praise the Lord for His name, for who He is and what He's done. It's, it's to glorify. This is what the word this is the word that Solomon chooses to instruct us about joy. It's a joyful word even in itself. This word commend, that he, he, he chooses to describe the type of joy that we're to have. And he's commending this joy for us, saying that there is nothing better for you under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this is going to go well with you through the days of your life that God has given you under the sun. Notice it says under the sun not just once, in that passage, but twice. He's going to say it again just in a couple verses later as well, too. He's, he's emphatic about this, friends. He wants us to make sure that we're getting it, that we are to eat and drink and be joyful. In other words, we are to have this perspective through everything. He mentions some mundane things. He's wanting to communicate to us that this is the disposition that we are to have through everything in life. This is just the ordinary Christian life, that we are to have joy through all ordinary events, through all of our work, our toil, for all the days of our life, God gives us these things. And remember again, this is his instruction to believers. To those that have this wisdom in Christ, 
the, this, is, this, this admonishment that he's given us here is not the foolish eat, eat, drink, and be merry philosophy of the unbelieving hedonist who's just living for pleasure. That's not what this is. Rather, this is the positive, safe outlook of God's children who accept life as God's special gift and know and, and knows that he gives us all, thing, all, all things richly to enjoy, as it says in 1 Timothy 6.17. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. Instead of complaining, friends, about what we don't have, we give thanks for what we do have and we enjoy it. Now, we need to be clear about a biblical definition of joy before I think that we can kind of get to the point of understanding how it is that we have this joy or maintain this joy. In the face of whatever's going on in our lives, because again, it's not, a, it's not a joy that's only for good times. In order for us to do this, we need to do what I'm calling this morning a little bit of evangelical cleanup. Uh, I think that from time to time, it becomes necessary to offer some sort of correction for an idea that has been popularized in a large part of Christendom, in this case in evangelicalism. And this particular notion is so popular that I fear that it may catch some of you off guard because it has been put forward as, as essentially like gospel truth for so long now. What I'm speaking of is this idea that says that joy and happiness are different. Take it that many of you have heard of this before, that, that joy is, is something and happiness is something, and they're not actually the same thing. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I, I'd be surprised if you've never heard that, because like I said, it's been so popular to say. I don't know, I just heard, I was listening to a little clip from um, the Passion Conference. I don't know why I was doing that. It wasn't edifying. But in it, anyways, they said, they said that very thing, that joy and happiness is different. So it's still even being said today, but the argument goes something like this. It says, happiness is a feeling, but joy is not. Or it says, happiness is temporary, but joy is everlasting. Or it says, happiness depends on circumstances or other people, but joy is a gift from God. Or happiness is worldly, but joy is divine. Now, some of those statements have true parts to them. Of course they do. Joy, you know, being from the Lord, that's a true statement. But there is simply no such distinction made in Scripture between joy and happiness, enforcing such a distinction between the two words that are so obviously close in meaning is unnecessary. It's confusing and it's misleading. It turns joy into this, this abstract idea that you don't even know really what it is because we're so associated with it just being happiness. So the first thing we need to realize is that biblically, there is no such distinction between happiness and joy in the church or even in the English language. If you simply look up in a secular dictionary and you'll see joy defined as happiness and happiness defined as joy. They are synonyms. They have overlapping meanings. A pastor and author, Randy Alcorn, wrote a book entitled Happiness a few years back. And in his preparation for it, he asked people to provide for him biblical passages that show this distinction between joy and happiness. And no one was able to provide such a distinction to him, and of course not. That's because there isn't a difference of them as we rightly understand the word. In fact, Scripture correlates them, meaning, in other words, that when we separate them, we make the Scripture say something that it's not. Uh, take, for example, the verse that our brother Ross read in the call to worship. In one verse, it said that he, he was 
that's causing us to rejoice. And then just a few um, verses later, towards the end, it says that he turns our, our mourning into gladness. Okay, joy and gladness, right there together. Uh, Jeremiah 31.13 in the Holman Standard Bible, so not the ESV that we use, the Holman Standard, Standard Bible is a, another good translation. It's not a bad translation at all. There, that verse says, Then the young woman will rejoice with dancing, while young and old men rejoice together. I will turn their mourning into joy, give them consolation, and bring happiness out of grief. Here in, in the parallelism of Hebrew poetry, the words happiness and joy are used synonymously, right there in Jeremiah 31, 13. And then also Proverbs 23, 25. You can look at that in, in your Bible if you have the ESV this morning. That verse there says, 23.25 says, Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So again, unless we are willing to say that gladness and happiness are completely different things, then we must say that joy, gladness, happiness, these things are all linked. They're not these totally different ideas explaining one thing for the Christian and one thing for somebody in the world. And even further, the Hebrew lexicons and dictionaries, they make no such distinction. The word joy here in Ecclesiastes 8.15 is the Hebrew word simha, and it carries with it the notion of, of, um, of glee, of, of blissomeness, of pleasure, of being merry, of rejoicing. It is both a technical term for the expression of joy, such as it's used in Genesis 31. If you remember back what happened in Genesis 31, um, Jacob and his family are leaving, and Laban catches up with them, and he, he asks them, why did you guys sneak out? Why did you leave? And the reason that he's asking that because, and this is debatable if he really would have done this or not, knowing, knowing the story, he says that he would have sent him out with mirth, with singing and dancing and musical accompaniment. accompaniment. So according to the Hebrew lexicons, it's both a technical term for the external expression and more frequently, it is a representation, a representation of the feeling of bliss. Joy is a feeling. That's how it's used here in Ecclesiastes 8.15, of course. Joy is a feeling. So, so joy and happiness are interchangeable in English, in Hebrew, in the Bible, and also in the pens of sound theologians throughout history. Pastor John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, cites John 15.11, which is that... that that popular verse, you may be aware of this, is that Jesus is saying, asking for his joy to remain in them. And there he explains, he says, the happiness Christ gives to his people is participation of his own happiness. He didn't have to say, oh, I actually mean joy there. He said the participation that Christ gives in happiness is participation in his own happiness. And Puritan Richard Baxter said, the day of death is to true believers of happiness and joy. He, he has Ecclesiastes 7.1 in mind there. And the Anglican priest who lost his position at Cambridge for refusing to pledge allegiance to King George, William Law, he spoke of happiness, he spoke of the happiness of a lively faith and a joyful hope. And then there's, there's Spurgeon who always seemed to talk about this joy and happiness that you have in the Lord. He said, the more often I preach, the more joy I found in the happy service. And he said, Despite your tribulation, take full delight in God, your exceeding joy this morning, and be happy in Him. 
He started out one sermon this way, saying, Oh, cheerful, happy, and joyous people, I wish there were more of you. Let the uppermost joy of you that you have always be Jesus Christ himself. And then one more from Spurgeon. May you still come, and then may your Christian life be fraught with happiness and overflowing with joy. It's a synonym. He's wanting to emphasize the same thing when they're saying these words together. They're interchangeable. When we think of what it means to have joy, we can't separate it from happiness even though it's been popular in modern times in pulpits and books to do so. But obviously not all modern thinkers think this way. What I'm sure, they're making what I'm sure is a sincere mistake, but a nevertheless a mistake nonetheless. I've already known that Randy Alcorn wrote a whole book on the subject. John Piper writes about this very thing, saying, if you have nice little categories, joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. It uses them congruently. And Joni Erickson Tata, she says similar things. She says, Scripture uses the terms interchangeably along with words like delight, gladness, and blessed. There is no scale of relative spiritual values applied to any of these. So scriptures are communicating the same thing, this deep internal joy that we have in being united to Christ. John Piper has a definition for joy that is helpful for us. It's on your note sheet. I like it. He says, Joy is a good feeling in the soul provided by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. You see, this good feeling is exactly what Solomon is commending to us, church, despite the chaos that may be going on in your life behind it. He is commending to us this good feeling of joy. In light of God's providential workings in the world, that this is a distinctly Christian application of joy. People who aren't saved, they experience joy and and happiness and gladness. Of course they do. This is part of what sometimes theologians will call common grace, if you like that, that term. But, but, it, but this joy that people in the world know, that lost people know, it's not the same sort of joy that the Christian has. It lacks the fullness of joy that comes in and with the presence of the Lord, as we read in Psalm 1611, that we can have the fullness of joy in Christ. There's a lesser joy or happiness experienced by the lost, those who don't acknowledge who it comes from, but the Christian, the believer, is commended joy because he knows the source of it. He knows the fountain of it. When a person is born again, they become familiar with this joy. And there's a, a conversion story of the great preacher, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, that illustrates this very well. Charles Spurgeon, he grew up in a Christian home. He had a modest upbringing, a normal upbringing for the time that he lived in there in the later part of the 19th century. Uh, He would read his Bible, he would pray. And so certainly as a child who had not yet tasted and seen that Christ was good, he had experienced joy and happiness in his life at various times. I'm sure he had birthdays, parties, and, and whatnot. But as an adolescent, he became very despondent, fearing that he wasn't saved. And so he writes in his autobiography, he says this, says, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feelings, I was unhappy. 
I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. He was only 15 years old when he, when he wrote that, when he was thinking these thoughts. But then, on a fateful, providential Sunday morning in 1850, during a massive snowstorm, he made his way to church. But because of the snowstorm, his regular route to church was blocked off because apparently this was a really big storm, and so the road was diverted, and he had to take shelter while he was making his way to church. And there was another church there, a primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. And supposedly even, the Methodist preacher that was supposed to be there, the normal one who's usually there, he wasn't there because of the snowstorm himself. So this lay preacher gets up, this guy who's going to fill in because the word needs to be preached, the Lord's day. And so he steps up to, to preach the word, and then his text was Isaiah 45:22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no one else. And Spurgeon's autobiography goes on to relay this. He says, he, meaning this lay preacher, had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me at any rate except his text. Then stopping, he pointed to me where I was sitting under the gallery. And he said, that young man there looks very miserable. Could you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine this preacher? pointing out a young 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon who is despondent, who has been having dreams of hell, who is lacking joy, and the preacher calls him out on it right there in front of everyone. And he shouted, and so Spurgeon says, and he shouted as I think only primitive, a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. And then Spurgeon says he had this vision, not a vision to his eyes, but to his heart. And he saw what a savior what a Savior Christ was. Now I can tell you, and he goes on to say, now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe, and I did believe in one moment. This was a miracle of salvation in a moment. And then he closes his conversion by saying, he says, this conversion story, at least in his autobiography, it says, between half past 10 o'clock when I entered that chapel and half past 12 o'clock when I was back, home, back again at home, what a change had taken place in me. Simply by looking to Jesus, I had been delivered from despair, and I was brought into such a joyous state of mind that when they saw me at home, they said to me, something wonderful has happened to you. And I was eager to tell them all about it. Oh, there was joy in the household that day when all heard that the eldest son had found the Savior and knew himself to be forgiven. So it's no wonder why Spurgeon talked about joy all the time. From, from, and happiness, and gladness, and merriment. From no joy to joy overflowing. This is what Christ does for us, church. Now, I would not dare to be as bold as that Methodist preacher that was used in the conversion of Charles Spurgeon and single out a specific person in the pews today. Not that bold today, at least. But... But listen, friends, if you're here this morning, if your heart is in despair, if you're, if you're 
not believing in Christ and you're believing that you are lost, well, you need to know the gospel and the hope that comes with it does not change. The way that Charles Spurgeon received Christ is the same way that everyone receives Christ. It's just as simple and just as mysterious as it was for Spurgeon as it is with everyone else. Listen, if you are here today and you lack the fullness of joy that comes from knowing that God is your God and that Jesus is your Savior, what must you do? It's not hard. It's not something that you must earn. All you do is what Spurgeon or anyone who has ever tasted and has become a Christian has done. It's actually not any doing even. It's simply looking. You look to Christ and you live. You look and live. Trust Christ and you will be saved. He has fulfilled the demands of the law. He has purchased redemption. He has opened the gate of heaven and he calls his sheep by their names and his sheep know his voice and they follow him. Christ is willing to save all of those that come to God through him. He lives to make intercession for all that comes to God through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life, church. Look to him and live. If you're lacking joy, Christ has joy for you in abundance. So we've seen now that there is no biblical difference between joy and happiness. We've seen that the joy which a believer possesses is, is greater than the joy that a lost man has. It goes deeper. It's grafted into our spirit, into our soul by the Holy Spirit. And Kohelet is commending this joy to us as a gift from God that can be ours through faith in our time under the sun. And of course it is so, because as a Christian, all of our time under the sun is time in the Son of God. But at this part of our thought process, we have to deal with this conundrum that Solomon has been addressing for us in Ecclesiastes. There are no shortage of things that are bad which may happen to us, things which threaten our joy in this life. There is real heartache, heartache, real depression that wars against our soul and threatens to steal the joy that has been won for us in Christ. Some of it is, some of it is legitimate, even some of it is not. But some of it is, is, of course, legitimate. And what I'm certainly not wanting to do this morning is minimize any legitimate pain or suffering that anyone is going through. Certainly there are times of pain and suffering which God brings into our lives for our sanctification, for His glory, and for our good. And in those times, I'm not saying that you have to put on some sort of mask and just act like everything, act like everything is perfectly good and well. You don't have to pretend to make it, that everything is fine. To acknowledge the joy that a Christian has isn't to apply some sort of like fake-it-till-you-make-it principle. That's not biblical. Don't do that. There are times when we must weep with those who weep. Remember even the principles that Solomon set forth at the beginning of the second division in chapter 3, where he says there's a time for this and a time for that. Well, one of those was a time to mourn and a time to laugh. God in his sovereignty has done those things. So when we're speaking of a Christian joy, we're not saying that it's wrong to mourn or to ever be sad. When a, when a couple loses a preborn baby, that, that is sad. When a spouse dies, when there are grave events in which many people perish, when a believer walks away from the faith, the diagnosis of a terminal disease, 
broken relationships, the list goes on and on and on. Sort of sorrowful, sorrowful events that it's, it's right, it's appropriate to bring us to tears. And we can name others, but do we as Christians stay in a state of sorrow forever? We don't. It's temporal. We come out of it eventually. And truly, there is a, a measure of joy that exists underneath the sorrow because the Holy Spirit indwells us. And one of the fruits of the Spirit, of course, is joy. You can't totally lose joy because you can't lose the Spirit of Christ who has sealed you for the day of redemption. Even when it comes to the mourning the death of a loved one. Remember what the Apostle Paul proclaimed in 1 Thessalonians 4? That, that we do not mourn like those who are lost, Reason being, because we have hope, hope in the resurrection, hope that is undergirded with faith and love. So how is it that we can have this joy which Solomon commands? How can we, by the grace and mercies of God, go from sorrow to the promised joy that God provides? Or how can we be so girded and so guarded in this life that joy might, in some cases, not even leave us, even in the face of a very difficult trial? even in the face of a trial that might totally just destroy a person without the Spirit. It's a fight sometimes, isn't it? A spiritual battle. But take heart, dear brothers and sisters, who is on your side? It is Christ Jesus. It is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Christ Jesus has overcome the world and we can trust His promises. Now, with the remainder of our time this morning, I want... This is what I want us to meditate on. And so you'll notice in your outline that I have two categories or two sections that I want to approach this from. These aren't the only things that might assist us in this battle, of course, but I pray that they'll be helpful to you. So the first one is to remember the source of your joy. When you're facing some sort of trial, whatever it may be, one thing that you can do is remember the source of your joy. Turn with me to Romans 5.11, please. It's in the New Testament, right after the book of Acts. You see the Corinthian letters? Go back. Romans chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse 11. This is that, that great chapter. This whole book is wonderful. So this is that great chapter in the book in which the latter half, he explains this, he, he contrasts the headship of Christ with the headship of the first man, Adam. And right before he gets into that section, he writes this here at verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What a privilege you have, believer. You may joy in God. Even more, you joy in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the Puritan Robert Murray McShane has a helpful book entitled The Believer's Joy. And I would commend it to you all. And in it, he writes this. He says, Joy in hope of glory is a blessed thing, but it is in the very nature of it a happiness whose object is unenjoyed in the far off. So you see what he's saying there. He's saying it's good, this joy and the hope of glory. It's good and it's filled with hope, but it's far off. It's not right now. 
I hope the glory is a future thing for us. It's not in this very moment. Is there something better then? Then he says, well, joy and tribulation, because obviously in this life we have tribulation, right? That's what the word says. So he says, joy and tribulation, again, is a blessed thing, but it is a happiness which can only be upon the earth. It is a joy, too, in spite of misery, a perfecting, but surely not a perfect joy. Certainly, having joy and tribulation is markedly a Christian thing, but it's not perfect. It's not something that we'll always be able to experience because there's an end to tribulation, isn't there? And that's praiseworthy in and of itself. But then McShane says this. He says, But joy in God is the most blessed thing of all. This is the third heaven of the believer's privileges, a joy which all the redeemed are sharing with angels, a joy begun in this world, made perfect in glory. In other words, it begins now and it continues forever. It is rooted in the person of God. Believer, right now, you can joy in God in the same way that you might in glory as well. It's because it's based upon who God is. So you see, we remember the source of our joy. It's not a joy dependent upon our circumstances. More on that later. It's joy in the very person of God who is greater and over any circumstance. And there are, there are several reasons why it is that the believer joys in God, several truths of who God is, which McShane draws upon to encourage us in the faith. So, so the first thing that we can consider in this category is that the believer has, or excuse me, the believer joys in God because he is omniscient. God knows all things. That's what, that is what is meant by omniscient. Nothing can be hidden from God. He knows all his holy will. Think of Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Solomon has said the same thing in Ecclesiastes 7, which we were in back in November. And he's, there he's contemplating the wisdom of God. And remember what he says in Ecclesiastes 7, 24? He says, that which has been far off, it is deep, very deep. Who can find it out? You see, the the ability that God has to know is, is too much for us to fathom. He knows all. He knows the words on our tongues before we even say them. He knows our every sin. And in that, believer, he has provided for you a Savior. He knows all of the indwelling corruption. But joy in God because he is able to lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. He, his omniscience is the reason that we, or is, is one of the reasons that we are to joy in God. He knows the plans that He has for you. He's going to He's going to continue the good work that He started in you. He knows all things. We can have joy in God for that reason. Secondly, the believer joys in God because God is Almighty. Isaiah forty one ten reads, "Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God." I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see, the fact that God is Almighty is reason for us to joy in Him. Christian, what, what trouble do you have that is greater than God? You don't have one. You don't have one that God is not better than, that He's not greater than. Or, or what in this world is God afraid of? There's nothing that God is afraid of. And then He tells you then to fear not because he's with you. If you didn't have God with you, you have reason to fear. But you don't need to be dismayed because God is your God and he is your God through faith. His, his, his power is 
consistent, and it is instant with his sovereignty. His providence is working all things out that ever has happened. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. If you want to know how it is that you might have joy, remind yourself that God is almighty and that he is sovereign because nothing that means nothing is happening to you that is some sort of chance that God cannot somehow use for his glory and for your good. And the Christian has the sure promise that the very things that are happening in your life, he is using for good. What is our greatest enemy, even? Isn't it death? Isn't death defeated in Christ, though? For the Christian, uh, we, we sang this a couple times in two of the songs, I think. I noticed while we were singing this morning. For the Christian, death is, is but the door that God opens to welcome you to glory. It's not, for the Christian, there is a real sense that it, that it is, as Ecclesiastes said once said, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Not to say that won't be sad for others and like that, but still, God is Almighty. Have joy in the Almighty God. Jesus' very life is your surety. And then he defeated death in the most remarkable way through dying himself, but he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. So joy in God because he is Almighty. Thirdly, the believer joys in God because he is just. The goodness of God is a reason for you to have joy. God is to be trusted. He's not like the false god of the Muslims who is capricious and fickle. You can be sure of your salvation and have joy in that because God is just. We'll skip some stuff to save some time here because I want to get to this last point. And then one more category here. The believer joys in God because he is love. McShane calls this the sum of the reasons as to why you should joy in God. You know it, Christian. That feeling that you have, knowing that God loves you, that the creator of the cosmos and everything ever created has placed his special love upon you. Is that not a reason to always have joy? Can you remember that when something is threatening to steal away your joy? Oh yes. God loves me. It overshadows any circumstance. And the wonderful thing about it is that you can have confidence in this love because you know it wasn't something in you that made him to love you. And when you're tempted to question, to doubt the love of God, what must you do? But the very thing that you did when you first received Christ, when you became a Christian, is you simply look to Christ. Look to the cross. There, beyond a shadow of doubt, is God's love proved. So remembering the source, remembering the fountain of your joy will help you in pursuing joy. And now this last category that I wanted to mention. And the first category kind of really feeds into this, as I hope you'll see. The second category there on your outline for maintaining and pursuing joy is to learn to be content in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to Philippians 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Verse 11 to 13. The Apostle Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every, excuse me, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a very key word that I want us to focus on in very 11. It should shake us up a bit. It's the word whatever. Paul writes that he has learned that in whatever situation he is in, he has learned to be content. Circumstances aren't driving his joy here. The person who has joy is a content person. No contentment, no joy. Because you always be striving. You always be wishing that things were some other way. So a few things for here for us to think about. First is this. Paul says that he has learned this to be true. It's not something that we inherently or intuitively know. It's not something that comes naturally. It's something that he had to learn. Uh, The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes, he says, that contentment in every condition is a great art, a spiritual mystery. It is to be learned and learned as a mystery, and those who are trained in this art have learned a deep mystery. And this is a deep mystery to the world, isn't it? No one is content in the world. It's, It's the rat race. Everyone is trying to outdo one another. Everyone is fighting to have more thinking that if you just had a little bit more, well, well, then you would be happy. Then you would be satisfied. But that's a lie. John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the wealthiest people to have ever lived, um, in his time, it was asked of him, how much money is enough? And, and you know, again, you couldn't even compare any, the second person, the second wealthiest person to Rockefeller. And his response was, just a little bit more. And he had more. He had, I read that he had 1% of the whole of United States wealth was caught up in him, of the whole country. It's caught up in this one person. But, but I want to suggest to you this morning that contentment is not some sort of utopian ideal that can't be reached, but that it's mysterious because it can only be learned by those who are united to Christ. Only by those who have been born, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God are the ones who can say, the world is not my portion, but only Christ is. Burroughs writes, a little of the world will content a Christian for his passage in life, but all the world, and 10,000 times more, will not content Christian for his portion. Have we learned this profound mystery? This art and mystery of contentment. Joy is caught up in it, friends. If joy is lacking, it's because you're not remembering the source of your joy, or perhaps perhaps because you're lacking contentment. Have we learned this mystery of contentment? It's when our our hearts cry out to God in prayer in light of our consideration of God's providence, saying, God, no matter what my circumstances may be, I know that you have for me my good and for my glory, so do with me whatever you will. Is Is that a prayer you can pray, Christian? So in other words, A content Christian is not someone who rides this roller coaster of circumstances that come our way without any certainty. We have certainty. So here's a good question for us to ask ourselves. In the midst of a really bad day of work, where it seems like everything that can go wrong has gone wrong, or or maybe parents, when the kids won't listen, or the chores are just piling up at the house, and, the, you know, the kids change their clothes ten times in a day, and they, they put all the clean clothes into the laundry. Our students, when, when you have those late nights doing homework, studying for tests, 
going from school to your job and then doing it all over again, can you stop in the middle of it all and say, I'm content? Forget even about individual days. What about seasons of life? There are things that will come into our lives like a stick of dynamite to just blow everything up. Job loss, tension and strife in marriage, things like infertility, rebellious children, miscarriages, financial strain, health issues, not getting into the college of your choice, not getting the grades that you want, not getting the job that you want. All of these things scream, be discontented. But can we say in those times, Christ is enough. Ian Murray is a really good biographer. He got one. He has one on Spurgeon. We talked a little bit about earlier. He also has a really good one on Jonathan Edwards. And in this biography, he explains a difficult season for the pastor Jonathan Edwards, in which he says that he, he comments on this season in Edwards' life, in which Edwards was fired from his church, uh, a church that he had faithfully pastored for many years, because he stood on his convictions for the Lord's Supper. What happened was. He wanted only believers to be partaking of the Lord's Supper, and the church was like, no, no, just let anybody you know, take Lord's Supper, and he wasn't for that, and so they fired him. Now, when this happened, Edward didn't lash out on the church. He didn't plead his case to the local newspaper, and, and so he could defend himself publicly, because now he's been you know, deflocked in public. It would, I'm sure there'd be some level of shame. He didn't even call the, the people at his church a bunch of unbelieving pagans, which certainly most of them actually were. And Murray records the eyewitness account of a close friend of Edwards who was able to say this. He said this about Edwards. This is Edwards' friend. He said, After his firing, Edwards received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptom of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of reach of his enemies, whose treasure was not only a future treasure, but also a present good overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismissal. It's wonderful, isn't it? When your circumstances, when your circumstances seem backwards and they seem upside down, can the same sort, sort of thing be said about you? Can I say it about myself? Just preparing this sermon was like a cold bucket of water on my face this week. I love how he said that happiness that his happiness, Edward's happiness, was out of reach of his enemies and how his treasure was not only a future treasure but a present good. Jonathan Edwards' contentment wasn't wrapped up in his circumstances. It was, it was rooted in a heart of joy because he knew that he belonged to Christ and that Christ is Lord over all. He's working all things through his world in providence. And so, so he couldn't be moved in that moment. So often, you know, we... we, we try to content ourselves by saying, oh, it'll get better in the future. Oh, I know that I just have to endure this for a time, and if I do, it'll, be all, it'll all work out. But notice that it's not what Edwards was thinking. He wasn't thinking about what's to come. We try to console ourselves by saying, oh, this will pass, and this will all be over, and the future will be better. And that's often true. It's not bad. It's good. It's glorious even. But what about right now? Can we have joy in our present circumstances? Can I be content with the lot that I have? Whatever it is, maybe you're stuck in a position of waiting. That's hard. I know it's hard for me. Can you be content with what you don't have and not just with the notion that you'll have it in the future? That's what the Apostle Paul had learned right here, how he could be brought low or how he could abound. 
but he's still content. Can I be content with the treasure that we currently have because every blessing in the heavenly places is already yours in Christ? You see, with Edwards, it wasn't about his job and his livelihood and the fact that he was able to provide for his family or he was, that he was doing something that he enjoyed, that he liked. Plain and simple, Edwards was content because he believed that the Lord did all things on purpose and for his good. And so he could rest. He could be without worry, without anxiety, without fear. Christ and not the world was his portion, and so he was content. He learned that mystery. Have you learned that mystery? There is no joy, no lasting joy without it. Those who know contentment are those who freely and fully submit to the will of God in our lives. Where does grumbling, where does murmuring come from in our lives? Discontentment. Being unsatisfied with what you presently have is, is literally kicking against the will of God. If I'm, if I'm truly content, I don't covet that which what I don't have. But instead, I thank God for what it is that he has already given me. A truly content person doesn't get jealous when he sees another person getting something that they wanted and they're still stuck in, in neutral or maybe even worse, they're going backwards. But that person turns his heart to God knowing that Christ is his portion and that he has what he needs and knowing God is always good to him, is going to be good to him for Christ's sake. So you see, the mystery that is learned is that contentment is just, it's not simply tolerating circumstances. It's freely and joyfully submitting to the will of God no matter what comes our way. And the Apostle Paul expands on this idea in verse 12. We won't deal with that. But look at verse 13. I want us to notice What's said there, we'll close with this. This isn't some locker room text, friends. This isn't some verse that belongs on a shoe. It belongs in your heart. You see, how is it that the Apostle Paul is able to be content? How is it that we can be content and therefore possess joy no matter what is going on or, or not going on in our lives? It is with the knowledge, the wisdom, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It's not us. It's not you. Remember the song we sang? It is not, not, for, not for I, but for Christ. How does this line go? Something. Yet not I, but for Christ in me. It's not you. It's Christ in you. It's as I said, you know, the first category here feeds into the second one. Remembering the source of your joy makes it so that you can learn to be content in what? In Christ. We can learn to be content in Him. We can have discontentment. We can have joy under the sun. Not because everything that happens to us is always favorable. Not because everything always works out the way that we want it. Do you even realize how small that is? That if that's your standard for contentment, do you realize how petty that is? We can have joy, friends, because we are content because Christ is our portion. And He's better than anything else. So I'm going to I'm going to pray, and then we'll invite the music ministry up after that. Father in heaven, this joy that you have given to your people is better, so much better than any joy that could be found in the world, Lord. We are grateful to you for the mercies and the blessings that you have given to us in Christ, and we ask that you would give to us this joy, that you would teach us to remember who you are and to be content in this life because you are sovereign and you are working all things 
for your glory, which is our highest desire, Lord, that you would be glorified. So whatever it is that you want to bring into our lives that you might be glorified, let us rejoice in it, whether good or bad from the world's point of view, so that you might be honored and glorified for you deserve glory, God. You are so good and we need you. We love you and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.